You may be aware of the family circus cartoon. Artist Bill Keen traces the daily adventures of a husband, a wife, and their four young children. One of Mr. Keene's recurring themes is a mischievous ghost who has the words, not me, inscribed across his chest. It appears from time to time in the cartoon. Parents of young children know the routine pretty well. Who opened the peanut butter jar and didn't put the lid back on? Not me, is the response. Every kid in the house blames that same person. Who on earth ran across the living room carpet with muddy shoes? After careful interrogations, every child agrees, not me. Again, they insist when the screwdriver is lost out of the toolbox, not put back. Who took it? Not me. So Mr. Keene kind of has some fun with this and he draws this little ghost that's running around the house doing everything anybody could blame someone for. Not me is at the heart of it all. And it's all in good humor, to be sure. But the humor hinges on the reality that we are all pretty good at self-justification. We're pretty good at saying it's not me. I've not done it. I'm not guilty. When we look at young children in that area, it can be funny. But you know, as we get older, it doesn't get so humorous. In fact, we go from self-justification in that I didn't do it to a more sophisticated form of justification. We graduate to this stage as we grow older. This justification does not say, not me, I didn't do it when we really did. Rather, it says assertively, I did do it and therefore I am justified. This is the orientation of the vast majority of religious people in this world. In fact, we might express this on a day-to-day basis. I've done this good, therefore I should be seen in a good light. But we codify it in religion in our world. I am justified before God. I'm justified before Allah. I'm justified before my God in the pantheon. I'm justified, whoever it is, Because I do good things. In fact, massive numbers of nominal Christians will receive the Lord's Supper today as they understand it, believing that to take these elements is a meritorious act. That it is a good deed that justifies them in some measure before God. I don't know of any, I don't believe any would say that just taking this will be all that is necessary to be justified before God, but they will believe that it's a part of it. That gathering together around this table and receiving these elements will bring pleasure to God by what I've done. Will give me a right standing before Him. Let me say that if we come with any vestige of that thinking to this table, we will desecrate this meal. As we commune together around this table today, we declare our communion with and our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to do this, it is vital that we give careful consideration to how we as sinners are justified. How we attain a right standing before God. We must be careful not to confuse 
this meal for something it is not, but we must come with the right orientation and heart attitude as we stand before our God. How are sinners justified? This leads us to Romans chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul strongly opposes any possibility of self-justification. And we use that word usually to mean I'm, I'm saying I didn't do something, but to take it in the broader sense of justification that comes from me. That is what I do makes me right before God. Paul says that is not possible. That's not the case. We cannot earn a right standing with God. So his emphasis is not on self-justification through righteous works. His emphasis, rather, chapter 3 and verse 23 is this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is hope, however, in verse 24. We are justified. How are we justified? We're sinners, so we're not justified on the basis of who we are, but by His grace as a gift through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That is, Christ's death propitiates, that is, satisfies the anger of God against sin. And it is then by faith in what Christ has done that we gain justification, a right standing before God. Now we hear these things, certainly anyone that's been part of this church for any period of time, and say this is all pretty straightforward to us. We understand that salvation is by faith alone. It is by faith in what Christ has done for us. We celebrate that here. We celebrate that every Lord's Day and every time we gather as a church. Our salvation hinges on this truth. It's fairly common to us. What I'm not so sure we understand is how that theme would have struck the original readers of the book of Romans, particularly those with a Jewish background. This is a bold statement by the Apostle Paul. The typical Jewish rabbi in Israel at the time held that the patriarch of Israel, Abraham, perfectly obeyed God's law even before God issued His law on Mount Sinai. So the law to Moses, came, and to the children of Israel, came after Abraham. But the rabbis of, of Paul's day were saying that he nonetheless kept the law. He was justified by being faithful to God. He earned that standing by his faith in God. Now, What is more, as James Edwards so ably notes, people then naturally think that the achievements and renown of their ancestors are passed on to them and denied to others. This is what was true with Abraham. By being a righteous man, he was justified before God. This now is true of us as the Jewish followers of God. And it's not true of anybody else. That was the thinking in Paul's day. So the Jewish rabbis are arguing that Abraham achieved his justification before God. They even would appeal to Genesis 15.6 to say that. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. They took that passage to mean 
that Abraham earned a righteous standing by his obedience. That's what we're doing, they said, and that's what no one else is able to do. Now, think of this passage in those terms, and you see the bold declaration of Paul here. You see how daring and courageous this is. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we hear that, we tend to think of me. I've fallen short of the glory of God, and it's good we think of it that way. But think of it from the standpoint of his context. People all have sinned? Really? And then he says, only by faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross can anyone be saved. Anyone? What about Abraham? As we enter chapter 4, Paul boldly asserts that these realities even apply to Abraham. The patriarch of the Israelite faith. The one that had such high standing in Israel. It might have been something parallel to the veneration that is granted to Mary within the Roman church today. That's very different. But in a sense, that's the kind of veneration that Abraham had. And here is Paul coming and saying, everyone is a sinner and no one comes to Christ, uh, to God apart from the work of Christ. Whether they were looking forward to that or looking back on it now as we are. It's a bold statement. But he carries forward this proposition that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Not by his righteous deeds. He was justified by his faith in God. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Can we just say that a bit differently, just to paraphrase? How did things work for Abraham? Is all that he's saying here. It's a little bit of confusing language here, but he's talking about Abraham, our patriarch. But how did things work for him? What did Abraham discover, as one has put it, to be the case with respect to the matters Paul is discussing? I've said all are sinners and no one comes to God apart from Christ. How does that apply to Abraham? What was true in his situation? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And this little side comment, but not before God. Let's pick this apart for a moment. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, boasting can be really bad. It shows pride. But not all boasting is wrong. It doesn't show a wrong or sinful kind of pride. We might express this kind of boasting when our team wins some championship. Now, it might be sinful pride, but but generally not. It's, 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 a, it's a pride that's filled with joy and that's filled with celebration and gladness. A child comes to you boasting and says, Mom and Dad, I've cleaned my room. You don't sit them down and lecture them and, and correct their sin. That's good boasting. Let's have some more of it. Honey, I've just earned my first paycheck as a married couple. Isn't that exciting? I mean, there's a pride there that's not evil. It's filled with rejoicing and good. It's something that I've done that is good. I think that's the kind of boasting he's talking about here. If Abraham, if, let's assume this to be true for sake of argument, if Abraham is justified by his works, he has reason to boast. Now we could understand that phrase that's tagged on there, but not before God to be, he could boast before people, but you can never boast before God. 
I don't think in context that's what Paul means. I think rather he's saying this is not the case with God. It's, it's a little bit of a strange phrase for us, but not before God because he doesn't define it. But I think what he's saying is something like this. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about in the best sense of the word. But this is not a biblical position. Not before God. Not in the sight of God. This is not how it works. For, verse 3, what does the Scripture say? He appeals here to the authority of God's written Word. Abraham believed God, and it, his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. These are provocative words. You remember the context? God promised to Abraham a great people. Great offspring will come from you and from your body. But Abraham and Sarah had a major problem. They had no children, and it appeared that they could never have any children. Abraham thinks he must adopt a son in order to have offspring, and maybe that's how God's promise will be realized. And God, so to speak, puts his arm around Abraham and takes him outside at night and says, look up into the heavens. Look at the stars that you see there. As you cannot count these stars, so you will not be able to count your offspring that come from your body. And in that context, we have the first biblical reference to saving faith, to credited righteousness. And it says there in Genesis 15-6, Abraham believed God and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. It was put on his account. He was seen as justified before God because of the faith that he put in God's Word. And I think we could include in there Genesis 12 as well. It was faith that God would bless all nations through him, through his offspring. He put his faith and his confidence in what God said. Now let's stop here for a moment, and we who believe in salvation by faith, largely here today, let's consider carefully what Genesis 15 teaches us about genuine saving faith, and what we must bring to this table if we're not going to desecrate it. Here in Genesis 15.6, the first explicit biblical reference to faith provides a very important picture. Let me make three statements. Saving faith is an utter confidence that God is utterly trustworthy and will keep His promises. An utter confidence that God is utterly trustworthy and will keep His promises. Secondly, saving faith is an utter reliance not on what we can merely prove to be true, but on what God has declared to be true. There's a sense in which we must believe His Word against evidences to the contrary. As I look at your faces here today, there's many of you that are facing evidences to the contrary. But we believe God's Word above what we merely see. Thirdly, saving faith is an utter dependence on the gracious initiative and supernatural intervention of God in my salvation. There's a work from above. There's a salvation from above that comes from the supernatural realm and I look to God as the one who initiates that salvation and I trust Him. 
utter dependence on his trustworthiness and his promises, believing his word against evidences to the contrary, and looking up to him as the source and initiator of my supernatural salvation. That is saving faith that we find bound up in the account of Abraham's belief in God, which he credited to the man as righteousness. He had a right standing before God because he believed God. He believed His Word. Now think of that in context. This, to quote Genesis 15.6, was a bold move by Paul because the rabbis of his day used this very verse to say that Abraham earned his justification by believing God. But the context of Genesis 15 would reveal rather that Abraham did nothing to earn God's favor. He simply believed what God said. He threw his trust upon the Lord. Chrysostom, the ancient preacher, noted, it's one thing to say that an unrighteous person is declared righteous by faith. They got no other hope. I mean, that's the only way they could be declared righteous is that somebody gives them that righteousness as a gift. But it's a far greater matter to say that someone as good as Abraham was also justified not by works but by faith. So what Paul is doing here in a sense is he's going to the top of the class. He's looking at what the Jews would see as the most faithful man and godly man, and he says, this man also was justified by faith, not by works. He then enters upon a section here of logical support of this proposition. Now, in a sense, verses 1-3 through are supporting what he said earlier. All are sinners, salvation only by the death of Christ. He goes back to Abraham. Abraham lived long before Jesus was crucified, but he's really saved the same way by faith in what God has said and what God has provided. Now the logical support, verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as as his due. Makes sense, right? I was on church business before the city council sometime past here in Uh, everybody kind of woke up all of a sudden when a woman came to the lectern before the city council and presented the fact before the council that one of the council members was her boss and had not paid her. I mean, talk about everybody waking up. It was was quite quite theater. Um, That's not a good idea. I I think it's probably a little obnoxious to handle it in that way, but it was interesting to me that no one on the council had anything to say. It wasn't that they say, you're wrong. Let's call the police and get her out of here for saying this. No, everybody really recognized intuitively that when you have given away life, you've given your time, your attention, your abilities to someone, and there's been a contract there that they will repay you wages, you're right. You should be paid. That's all Paul's saying here. If our works produce a right standing before God, then we are simply being paid with justification. We are simply getting what we've earned. And that is how the massive numbers of religious people in this world would think. I do religious things to gain the favor of God. It's like wages. I'm owed a right standing because I've earned a right standing. 
Notice by contrast, verse 5, he continues, to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Does salvation work like this? I do good works to earn the favor and right standing with God? Or does salvation work like this? It is a gift to the one who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Notice here the phrase, not work. People who know they cannot gain God's favor by means of good works. This is speaking of people who cannot justify themselves and know it. To the one who does not work. I cannot do anything to gain God's favor, but notice the next phrase, which is downright shocking. But trust Him who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly? God says wicked people are good? It's one of the most surprising statements in the Bible for many. And I wonder if we get it as we come to this table. God is a righteous judge. We would expect an honest and faithful judge to condemn sinners. But God justifies the ungodly when their faith in Him is reckoned to their account as righteousness. In the realm of personal evangelism, I would encourage you to put Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 in your pocket and use it. When we're working with people who believe that they are earning salvation by their good deeds, this verse is shocking. And I'll many times, I've many times just asked people, do you believe that by doing good things, God approves of you and that He gives you a right standing in His presence because of what you've done? And they'll say, well, of course. God's fair. If I've done good things, God will see me as a good person. And then I turn to Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 and just have them read this. And it's interesting to watch. God justifies the ungodly. And sometimes they'll they kind of look at it a little closer like they just read the word wrong. That, that's what it says. I think Paul's being a bit provocative here, but he's striving for us to get the point. God is a righteous judge. We would expect an honest and faithful judge to condemn sinners, but God justifies the ungodly when their faith in Him is reckoned to their account as righteousness. God then only justifies sinners. Because when someone sees themselves as righteous in their own standing, they are showing that they do not understand their sin and they've not come to terms with a holy God. It's forgiven people that are justified. And that now is his next matter. We witness this glorious truth in the life of another Old Testament figure, namely King David. Now Paul draws on Psalm 32, written after David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Where are we with Abraham? Well, Abraham is possibly sinless, the Jewish people would argue. 
He was a very virtuous man. It might have been debated a bit, but many felt he never broke the law. No one thought that David was sinless. Nobody that believes the Bible. Yet just as Abraham was justified by faith, the other side of that reality is seen in the biblical account of King David after he committed adultery and murder. He writes this. Just as David, verse 6, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, will not reckon on his ledger a sinful condition before God. Was David a sinner? Everybody says yes. It's wrong. It breaks the law of God to commit adultery and to commit murder. But this sinner, this David, in, the very, in a very similar way to Abraham, is credited with righteousness because his sins are forgiven. So on the positive side, we have this in verse 3. Faith is reckoned to our account as righteousness. In verses 7-8, the flip side, sin is not reckoned to our account as unrighteousness. And all of this hinges on what? Who is righteous? It's not me. Who is righteous? It is Jesus Christ. And any honest reading of the book of Genesis would make quite clear that Abraham was not sinless. It would argue that he came to a place of sinlessness in his life. But we see Abraham as a man like you and me, a man who in two respects specifically in Scripture is a bold-faced liar. It's not Abraham. It's not his righteousness. It's not in us. For as Paul has demonstrated in Scripture, teaches throughout all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The crucial connection for standing with a right position before God is this. It is to recognize that it all hinges on faith. Not faith in my righteousness, but faith in Christ's righteousness. Now again, as a church, we come to some level of comfort with these ideas. Do we recognize as we walk outside this building that even the vast majority of those who claim to be Christian do not think this way at all? I don't think they think like the Apostle Paul. I don't think they think like Psalm 32. I don't think they think like Genesis 15.6. This is all connected to Revelation, but they think very differently. I say this with all respect, but it is the facts. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, massive numbers of people believe in the idea that the church holds a treasury of merits. That is, the church in a non-physical sense has a treasury of excess grace that has been placed there in the hands of the church by the saints by Mary, by Jesus, excess grace given to the church, and the church hands this grace out, so to speak, from the treasury of merits as people do good things. And one of the best acts they do is to come and take the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. They take these elements of bread and wine, and as they take those elements, they believe that the church releases to them merit, releases to them 
a piece of justification. And so in the system itself, it teaches that by doing good things, I will bring pleasure to God and gain and earn a right standing with Him. Now, it's mixed in with a lot of other things. It's mixed in with the merits of what Christ has done. And we're thankful that these churches would see that Jesus indeed was murdered in order to provide salvation. But it's pieces of salvation from various sources, and one of those sources is from the things that I do. I earn a place of justification before God. One of the clear proofs of this is that the person who has done the best spends the least amount of time in purgatory. The person who's done less than the best spends more time. Again, it's connected to what I do. It is salvation by my deeds rather than salvation by faith alone. We move to Islam. And forgive me, some have heard this illustration in the class I've just taught, but for those that weren't part of that class, you'll get it here and we'll ask for the endurance of others. But I I have told this story often, but a, a, a Muslim evangelist sought to bring me into the fold of Islam. And over a period of time, we talked for some hours, and I finally came to recognize his intentions, and I asked him, all right, let's, we need to end this conversation, but let's do it this way. You tell me, what must I do to be a good Muslim? That was his intention from the very beginning, was to get to this place, and now I've offered it to him on the plate. Tell me how I can become a good Muslim. You know what he said to me? He laid out the five pillars of Islam and he said, you keep these laws and you will be submitting to Allah and you will be a good Muslim. And I told him, maybe a bit deceptively, but I said, I'm very disappointed. Because you don't understand, I can keep those laws, but they don't do anything to cleanse my wicked heart. I'm an evil man who sins against God and does not bring glory to Him. What can you do to provide forgiveness for me? And he had no answer. This was a man schooled in his faith. He had no answer. Just start living the five pillars and you'll be fine. No, I won't. I need the blessedness of one who has been forgiven. And that comes only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can add to orthodoxy, to Islam, Eastern religions that strive to find some inner light within us. But in the common theme in all of it is that salvation comes from within. It comes from what I do. How I perform. What I find within me to make myself pleasing before God. But the salvation that we find in Scripture is one in which it is faith in Christ that is our salvation. The belief that justification is merited by our good works is as blasphemous as it is common. Why is it blasphemous? Because it says I can put God in a position of obligation to me. By doing good things, God will have to justify me because I've pleased Him by what I've done. I then begin to control God. And when you're doing that, you've got an idol on the shelf. 
true God will never be anyone's debtor, will never be obligated to us by our righteousness. What he sees rather in his pristine holiness is that there is no righteousness in us. The righteousness is found only in Christ. And unlike Abraham, he never lied, he never sinned, and he died to pay the penalty of sin. So we might ask, is God unjust to justify the ungodly? No, He is not because of chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. Our salvation is received as a gift by what Christ has done to appease the anger of God against sin. Now by faith we receive what Jesus has done. And so we come by faith alone. God gives the gift of salvation to those who trust in Christ's death and resurrection by faith alone. Because no righteousness is found in us alone. So as we come to this Lord's Supper, we would come if we understand these truths humbled. Rejoicing that God will not count my sin against me. I have a right standing with God that Christ is secured. My sins have been canceled. They've been removed. And here then I celebrate the fact with others that we are justified not by works, but by faith alone. By sola fide. And so, we gather at this table. And in what do we boast? We do not come here in the best sense of the word even to boast in ourselves. We come to this table to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, crucified and risen. We gather here to boast in Him. We gather here to boast in what He has done. We gather collectively in prayer and around these elements to say, Jesus Christ is highly exalted. He is the One that in whom we boast. He is the Lord. So we invite to this table those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not done so, you could not give evidence that you have placed your faith savingly in Christ. Then it's wise to simply pass this meal up. We welcome you here. Just pass the meal up. That trust in Christ is evidenced by baptism. By coming to a place after we've come to know Christ as Savior, of identifying with Him and with His people in baptism, this is one of the significant evidences to which God has called us to demonstrate our genuine faith. And we, we ask for those to come who have walked in faith that way. If we come with a heart that is repentant, seeking no goodness in ourselves, but we come with a heart that is saying that in Christ is my righteousness, then we come fitted not as perfect people, but as sinners who have been forgiven by placing their faith not in self, but in Christ. We come then as those here who come to boast in Jesus Christ in the best sense of the word. Let's respond to these truths. As we stand together and sing, hear 